local news, culture, and NPR. From Radio Catskill Studios in Liberty, New York, it's a local edition. I'm your host, Jason Dole. Thank you for being here with me on a Monday evening. Coming up, we check in with Sullivan County Youth Bureau. Learn about upcoming grants through the Youth Bureau. But first, tonight, we check in with New York Focus, New York's only nonprofit statewide newsroom, reporting on how power and politics in Albany impact people's lives and communities across the state. Radio Catskill partners with New York Focus to regularly bring you their in-depth journalism, including a recent story on declining prison population and Governor Kathy Hochul's plan for closing up to five facilities. As part of Hochul's initiative to reduce state spending, it could save $77 million by right-sizing the prison system. But the proposal's getting opposition from rural state legislators. Here to tell us more, New York Focus reporter Eliza Fawcett. Eliza, welcome back to the program. Thank you. So glad to be here. So let's start off talking about New York State's declining prison population, how much it's declining, why, and what does that mean? Yeah, so the the prison population, the incarcerated population, has been declining significantly um, in the last few decades. Um, If you look at the, the data going back to the 80s and 90s, there was a a huge um, surge in the prison population, and the state was also building many, many prisons during that era. So, you know, there's a graph that goes straight up uh, pretty much to to the late 90s, and then since then, it's declined uh, significantly. So, for instance, uh, since 2003, um, the incarcerated population in New York State has declined by 30,000 people. Um, So each year, you're seeing quite significant declines year-over-year. Yeah, and this was interesting to me because when you you talk about New York State's declining prison population, incarcerated population, you know, the first thing that you one might think of is is bail reform, that this is the impact of bail reform. But one of the first things that your reporting is telling us is that this has been happening for a a lot longer than that. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the the graph again, it's it's a really um, significant trend if you're taking that, you know, multiple decades lens, um, you know, and, and, and with that, um, the state has started to contract its, its um, prison system. Um, so I mentioned that the, there was a prison building boom in the 80s and 90s under Governor Mario Cuomo, for instance, that the state built 30 new prisons and, and those prisons filled up with all of those, um, you know, that surge of uh, its incarcerated population. Um, and, you know, so uh, hand-in-hand with the declining incarcerated population since the early 2000s, we've seen a contraction in the number of prisons across the state. Uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo, for instance, closed 18 facilities during his, his time in office. And now Governor Hochul is proposing closing more. Uh, can you talk about what she's proposing? And then we'll we'll get into reactions to that proposal. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Hochul has already closed a few prisons. Um, she closed six in 2022, um, and that was really coming off of the heels of um, legislation that had gone through under Cuomo. Um, but once again, she says that she wants to close 
five um, additional correctional facilities in the next fiscal year. Um, so, you know, this is going to be hashed out in the current budget process, this legislative session. Um, and she says that it's important to do this in order to right-size the system, meaning making sure the number of incarcerated people matches the number of you know, facilities across the system. Um, and so, you know, we dug into this and tried to get a sense of what the capacity at some of these facilities is currently like. And there definitely is a lot of uh, space in some of them. You know, we found that half of the state's prisons are less than 70% full, um, including a dozen that are less than 60% full. Um, and of course, with these facilities, you, you, you know, you want a little room to maneuver, but in some cases, those are pretty significant, um, you know, vacancies across a, a prison. Enough vacancies spread out across all of New York State's prison system that the system could easily absorb uh, having some of these prisons closed as the governor is proposing. Absolutely. And then, of course, the you know fiscal piece is, is key here. Prisons are very expensive to run. Um, and, you know, Huckle, uh is is. In, you know, generally focused on scaling back state spending across state agencies. Um, so her office uh, estimates that this um, per, this plan could save the state $77 million this year, and then in each subsequent year, uh, $128 million. And that's on top of other um, savings that the state has um, managed to secure through other prison closure. So, I mean, we're talking about a significant amount of money if those estimates, you know, do pan out. Of course, you're talking about a significant impact to uh, local economies as well going in the other direction. I imagine that's part of the response that the governor's hearing this proposal. And as we talk about this, I will just point out that you've got a handy map here showing where all of the state prisons are across New York State. And then also, as you mouse over each one, how full or how empty they are. But just in our in our listening area, we there are two of these facilities in Sullivan County. Uh, three of them in Ulster County and one of them in Orange County at Otisville. So, so this is a story that really relates to our area. What, what's the governor hearing from local lawmakers? Well, among lawmakers who represent uh, particularly more rural areas where prisons are major employers, um, the governor has been hearing significant amount of backlash to this proposal. Um, I spoke with a few of these lawmakers um, and they basically, you know, say that they don't want to see prison closures at all um, and that the impact will be too severe on uh, folks who work in prisons. Um, you know, an interesting kind of point of con- context here is that during past prison closures, um, the um, docs, the agency that runs the prison system, has tried not to has tried to avoid layoffs. And so has typically reassigned employees to other prisons, um, you know, but these lawmakers say that that is also a significant um, burden on families that they are reassigned sometimes to prisons that are quite far away. Um, and in this, you know, current uh, conversation, many of the lawmakers are specifically opposed to a provision in the proposal that would enable the governor to close prisons with just 90 days of notice. Um, and they say that's far too short, um, especially if a family would have to relocate and, you know, find a new school, um, find a new house. That's just unreasonable.
Yeah, you, and you've got a quote here from Philip Palmisano, who represents parts of the southern tier in Finger Lake, saying, quote, a 90-day prison closure, that's an insult and a slap in the face to these brave men and women who work this dangerous job. Uh, and that's a direct quote there, basically saying that's awfully three months notice, that's awfully short notice. And and then again, just to circle back to what you said earlier, you notice that there there's an understaffing uh, problem as well that these prisons so they're both underpopulated and understaffed but there are concerns about what does this mean for the people that you're asking they could relocate to another prison there's enough need within the system that they could work somewhere else but that would impact their lives as you said yeah and, and the, st- the staffing issue is, is an interesting one and um i dug into this a bit and in some ways it's, it's more nuanced than it might seem I and mean, one thing that was interesting with this current conversation around prison closures is that in the past, um, you know, the closures have been justified by the declining incarcerated population. But this time around, it's it's both that and the fact that um, Doc says that there's a significant um, staffing crisis in the system. There are all these vacancies um, and they're having trouble keeping and recruiting um, workers. And so, Docs is saying that this is also these closures would be a way to alleviate the staffing crisis, um, and it's true that there are um, vacancies across the system. Um, but one thing that I um, thought was interesting in this reporting is that while there are vacancies in security staff, so correctional officers, there are also significant vacancies among health workers, program staff, support staff, all those other workers who you know make a prison run. Um, and in some cases, like with the health workers, the, the vacancies are even more acute than with correctional staff. Um, and another point that's interesting here is that in comparison to other states, New York actually is more richly staffed um, than many of its its peer states. Um, when you look at the staffing ratio data, so how many incarcerated people there are per correctional officer, New York actually has the lowest ratio in the country, along with Vermont, even though it has a much bigger prison system. And um, I saw an analysis um, over the course of my reporting from from Vera, which uh, looks at correctional, um, which was looking at these correctional staffing issues. Um, and they think that um, that low staffing ratio is partly a result of the fact that DOCS has reassigned workers across the system to avoid layoffs when these prisons have closed in the past. So, you know, it's sort of a complicated uh, picture overall. You have Doc saying there is this deep staffing crisis and many prisons are certainly, you know, struggling with these vacancies. But looking at the broad overall picture, you know, you have these prisons that have a lot of space to spare. You have an extremely low staffing ratio, which, you know, works in correctional officers' favor. Um, and, you know, so there's a bit more nuance to the picture than, uh, might initially seem. Yeah. I don't want to throw too many numbers at folks over the radio, but if you look at the, the graph that you have under the heading Empire State of Decarceration shows the declining incarcerated population, uh, you also have a line on that graph showing the number of officers that are employed over the course of that time. And in a 20 year period, it's, it's a pretty negligible drop. It's a slight drop when compared to the sharp drop of the incarcerated, which that's, I, that made me think, boy, if, if they're experiencing understaffing now, what was it like 20 years ago when when there was such a, a higher ratio between incarcerated and corrections officers? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. Um, 
You know, I think if you talk to correctional officers or the union that represents them, um, you know, it's a very bleak picture that they paint that the work is so difficult, so risky, underpaid, the benefits aren't as good as they used to be. Um, you know, that job as a correctional officer used to be a really good job and, and now it, it doesn't feel that way. It's not a job that you might recommend to others. Um, but I think, you know, in the course of this reporting, I was also speaking with other researchers and um, folks who made the point that, you know, in some ways this whole issue kind of reflects the fact that the state needs to also maybe be thinking a bit more about what it would mean to kind of reimagine the, this, you know, this workforce um, that maybe, um, you know, isn't necessarily the, the future um, of, of the state in the way it maybe in the 80s or 90s seemed like it might have been um, this, you know, steady job that could be counted on. So I think that's another interesting kind of uh, thing to think about here, like, what is the future of correctional work and what is the state's role in, in helping determine that or, you know, investing in uh, industries that, that might have, you know, a deeper future. It seems like the state's already been involved in that conversation, even if people aren't necessarily aware of it, because reading your article and especially when you mentioned what was happening in the 80s and 90s, that prison building boom and those prisons were being kept full. So that's also an arrest and incarceration boom. Um, it's a very different uh, reality than what we're seeing on the ground now. But what about the politics and the optics of this? Just what about the practical common sense response of folks who might look around and say, hey, if crime is increasing, why are we closing prisons? What kind of message does that send? Are you hearing people talk about it in those terms? Yeah, I think that I heard a bit of that from some of these um, lawmakers who, propo who oppose the proposal. Um, and they point to, you know, Within, within prisons, particularly um, rising rates of assault. Um, and, you know, there is some context for that. Um, the docs commissioner said that while there have been an, a, you know, increase in assaults, um, most are minor or, or don't result in injuries. But still, I think there is a perception that um, prisons have become more dangerous by um, these Republican lawmakers who uh, oppose this proposal. Um, but again, I think you have to return to the, the data itself that these prisons have a lot of space to spare often. And in some cases, they have a huge amount of space. For instance, in uh, Washington County, Great Moto Correctional Facility, when I looked at the data, um, you know, it was barely 30% full at the start of this month. So you know, that means it has two thirds of its facility essentially empty. So it's one of the most empty prisons in New York State's corrections system, but that's not the only distinction it has. There's there's other uh, ways that this prison stands out. Can you tell us about those distinctions, and is there a correlation between size and some of these other issues that they're facing? Yeah, a couple of years ago, um, New York Focus did a story on Great Meadow and you know found that it had the highest rate of suicide of any state prison and one of the highest rates of recorded staff violence. So, you know, there have been significant issues there for quite a long time. I think even, I don't, I don't know what the um, capacity was at that, at that time. It was only a couple of years ago. And um, I think that the Great Meadow um, 
vacancy has increased somewhat since then. So again, it's it's sort of hard to um, draw a direct comparison between those those two data points. But um, you know, I think it's safe to say that Great Meadow is is a troubled facility, um, and you know, if this proposal is passed and um, the governor is looking at okay, where do we have a lot of space? Which facilities are um, you know, maybe not running as efficiently as we'd want them to. You know, there have already been in um, other, other uh, local reporting as well um, indications that Great Meadow, um, you know, may well be on that short list of um, prisons to be closed if this proposal does pass. Another uh, question that comes out of this, if the prisons are closed, then what happens with them then? I mean, the state owns this land and these buildings, Correct. Yeah, it's a it's a huge issue, and um, in the course of this reporting, I heard a lot of anger really at the state for not doing enough to redevelop these former um, prison sites. There was a um, prison redevelopment commission that was put together a couple years ago that came out with a report looking at a number of these sites, um, but there hasn't really been all that much action. At least, you know, when you take these dozens of sites that are pretty much sitting sitting empty um, across the state. I think um, a number of local communities have found it hard to attract developers. Um, You know, there have been some issues with state funding that was supposed to help support these communities after prisons were closed that hasn't really been um, doled out properly. Um, And again, I heard a lot of anger from Republicans who represent these areas. Um, You know, one told me that the or said in a budget hearing that the commission's, the prison redevelopment commission's report was fluff. Um, So, you know, he wants to see um, the state figure out what to do with these former prison sites before shutting down additional facilities and then just, you know, leaving them vacant. So uh, as you look at this, the governor's uh, proposing these uh, closures. There's a pushback, especially from lawmakers that represent rural areas where these prisons uh, and these uh, facilities are employers. What are you thinking happens next? What are you going to be watching for? And how do you think this all shakes out? I mean, if you look at the past couple of years, New York um, has repeatedly um you know, authorized these prison closures. So I think it's highly likely given um, a democratic run legislature that this proposal will pass. Um, And I think if and when it does, what I'll be looking at is just which facilities um, are going to go on that short list um, of the up to five uh, correctional facilities that the governor might want to close. Um, and I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens there and um, and then, of course, see how those conversations might play out in the local areas that would be most affected. Okay, great. You know, before you go, I wanted to ask you about another article that, that you uh, published last week. It's really an update on something. The, the last uh, uh, article of yours that we discussed on air here was about, you know, essentially who who's the watchdog entity for, um, uh, you know, county jails and who's watching the watchdogs now. You uh, and Chris Gilardi, who we've had on air a number of times, uh, pu- published something last week in New York Focus called be a jail watchdog. Is this an update to uh, your December piece? 
Yeah, it's a project we're really excited about. Um, we've done a series of stories looking into county jails, um, which are often, you know, deadly places that are, are little understood, um, as well as the state oversight agency, the State Commission of Correction, um, you know, which is meant to regulate them, but, uh, you know, has had significant issues in past decades. Um, and so as part of that series, we had requested um, many, many, many uh, documents from um, county jails across the state. Um, we'd filed 70 Freedom of, Infor- Freedom of Information Law requests for these reports, um, which the commission um, compiles when it inspects county jails. So it's a kind of rundown of how each facility is doing on these specific standards it's supposed to meet. Um, and we recently put them all online so that anyone in the public, other uh, local journalists, um, anyone who might find them interesting can look through the database, um, you know, pick a county or facility and a year and see how that facility was doing. Um, so we're really excited about this and hope that maybe some of your, your listeners might check it out and uh, see how their local facilities have, um, have stacked up. Okay, and again, this uh, story is up at NYFocus, nysfocus.com, Be a Jail Watchdog. Uh, the article that we've been talking about most of here uh, today was Hochul's plan to choose prisons faces a fight. We've uh, And you can find that article now on our website, wjffradio.org, also at nysfocus.com. We've been talking to the reporter who wrote it, Eliza Fawcett from New York Focus. Eliza, thank you so much for this uh, good work, good reporting, and going over all of it with us. Thanks so much. It was great to talk with you. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, check in with the Sullivan County Youth Bureau. Stay with us. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. This week on the Retro Cocktail Hour, we've got the exotic sounds of Don Tiki, the White Tiki 7, and Les Baxter, plus the wild percussion of Dick Shorty. I'm Daryl Brogdon. Hope you'll join me where the music's always shaken, not stirred. The Retro Cocktail Hour. Wednesday night at 7, here on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to the local edition. I'm your host, Jason Dole. Sullivan County Youth Bureau is currently open for grant applications from organizations dedicated to serving children and youth in the county. And these grants are made possible through annual funding from the Sullivan County Legislature. It's aimed at supporting youth programs throughout the county. Radio Catskills' Patricio Rabio had a chance to speak with Kristen Kitson, director for the Youth Bureau, and Catherine Patchy, coordinator of the Youth Internship Program. About these grants and how folks can apply. Every year, the legislature allocates money for the Youth Bureau to disperse amongst the county for youth programming. That's where we're currently at. The money has been released, and we're now accepting applications to obtain this this grant funding. I know this initiative has been ongoing uh, for the county. Kathy, can you give us some examples of successful youth programs that have previously been funded by this initiative? Sure. We fund an organization called Manor Inc., which is a newspaper that's run by youth. 
um, solely by you. They do everything from advertising all the way to distribution, and they have an amazing program. We fund most of Neston cultural arts programs and all local municipalities that apply, like the town of Thompson, town of Fallsburg. We also fund them. Yeah, they, I'm very aware of the Manor Inc. because we used to have the Manor Inc. kids here once a month. They do great work there in the newspaper. Actually, we had one of the Manor Inc. reporters recently interviewing one of our show hosts, Bill Williams, for the Kings for the Kingfisher Project. I forget the name of the reporter, but she was here not too long ago doing an interview. Uh, how does the Sullivan County Youth Bureau decide which programs should be funded? I'm sure you get a lot of applications when this opens up. So what is the sort of the decision process when it comes down to it? Yeah, I'm going to let Kathy enter that one because she takes the lead on that one, if you don't mind. We have a subcommittee sure. of our youth board who goes over the applications and then decides upon the allotments based on how much money we actually receive. These funds are provided by the Sullivan County Legislature. How does these funds help the youth in the community? If you want to give further examples on that, Kristen? Yeah, absolutely. This is the exciting part because... These monies fund so many programs and so many facets around the county. Anything from arts and culture to trips. Some of these youth get to go down to Manhattan, go see shows on Broadway, go see sporting events. They also have, we also have sports. So we have basketball, baseball, skiing, all different types. Kathy did talk about Manor Inc., which we're pretty proud of. We do camps. So some camps have swimming programs. Some offer free or reduced prices for you to attend camps. And we also fund infrastructure for improvements to, for example, soccer fields and places for youth to be. There's quite an array. So I'm sure there are challenges when applying for these grants. Many of the organizations, I know my personal experience of applying for grants, sometimes it could be a very tedious process. What challenges have some organizations faced and how does the Sullivan County Youth Bureau support the applicants through the process? Kathy? What I can tell you is that this is not a grant that you've applied for before because they tend to take a, a month to create and there's a lot of back work that needs to come with it. This is literally three pages that are online and people can apply very easily. We are here every step of the way if people have questions about one section of the grant. So it's really a pretty easy process, and we keep it that way purposefully. The Youth Bureau receives money annually from the Sullivan County Legislature to fund youth programs within Sullivan County, and eligible applicants include private nonprofit organizations, schools, towns, villages. If someone is hearing this and they have an organization or an idea to do something with the youth in Sullivan County, what can they do? to get a chance at this funding? Yeah, absolutely. So the easiest way is give me a call. We can talk it through. We can see if you are eligible. My phone number is 845-807-0394. And if you want to just look at the application, see if it applies to you, see if it's something you want to do, you go to the Sullivan County website, which is sullivanny.us. Click on through the Youth Bureau, and the application is right there. So either way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Before we go, is there anything else I have not touched on Do you want uh, to have mentioned? Anything ongoing that's happening this season for the Youth Bureau? Yeah, there was one more thing, Patricia, I wanted to just talk about. To see what's going on in the county, to keep updated on, on all the events, and what we post is free for you. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook. It's Solid SC Youth Bureau. 
It's a logo. It's, it's round faces. So follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Also weekly, I distribute what I call the youth bureau blast. It's all the events. It's upcoming things. And if you want to be put on that mailing list, give me a call. I'll gladly put you on that mailing list. Well, talking to the youth bureau, they're offering, they're now accepting grant applications from organizations to help serve the children and youth within Sullivan County. The deadline is Monday, March 11th by the close of business day. Thank you so much, uh, both of you, Kristen and, and Kathy, for talking to us, letting us know about the application process and what folks need to do to apply. Thank you so much for joining me on the program. Thanks for letting us share. Have a great day. Have a great day. I'm Patricio Robayo for Radio Catskill. Thank you, Patricio. Thank you, Sullivan County Youth Bureau. Thanks to New York Focus as well for checking in with us tonight. And thank you for listening. As always, please do keep listening on air and always live streaming at WJFFradio.org. Tim Bruno will be here with you in the morning for Radio Chatskill at 10 a.m. Coming up, you want to stay with us, we've got uh, the Laura Flanders Show at 7, followed by Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. But then, get this, you'll hear Laura Flanders again because she's the guest host of Bioneers tonight. So, something to look forward to tonight, but it all starts with The Daily up next. This is Radio Catskill. Radio Catskill supporters include SUNY Sullivan, a community college in the Sullivan Catskills focused on preparing students for the future. More information at sunysullivan.edu. Livingston Manor, dining, shopping, and the arts at the Gateway to the Catskill Park. LivingstonManorNY.com. And listeners like you who donate at wjffradio.org. Every weekday morning at 9, News Hour from the BBC brings you the most important international news stories. News Hour helps you understand a complex world. Stay informed with News Hour from the BBC, weekday mornings at 9 on Radio Cats.